3: Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios.
1: Imagine walking into your hotel in Mexico City during a family crisis and finding 100 tamales delivered to your room. Then for the following three years, receiving concerned texts, uplifting emails, and bouquets of flowers which could hardly get through the front door. Imagine a friend who makes a lightsaber with your name engraved on it while directing Star Wars with a cast and crew of thousands and designing a Lego digital model of the River Cafe for your birthday. Confessing later, more challenging than directing a movie and what movies they are, brilliant, beautiful movies we wait for and require. A friend who makes you laugh so much through dinners at your restaurant, the staff look on and wonder. This is J.J. Abrams, who I'm here with today to talk about food and family and friendship. Imagine how happy I am to be with someone I love.
2: I mean, seriously, (laughs) I can't follow that at all? What are you doing? Uh, I, I got chills four times when you are reading that. I mean, seriously. It's true. That's impossible.
1: No, it's really best. possible. You know, it's true. Every word well, of it, so I can't imagine that here we you are. I adore you and
2: love you and thank you.
1: Okay, we're done now. That was it. That was it.
2: <laughs> There's nothing better than that. Seriously, we should quit now.
1: <laughs> well, we can't, because we have oh, to find a no. recipe. Which one should we do? That? Would you carbonara or chocolate cake? Let's um, do carbonara. It's, yeah, okay, are you kidding that's me? It's a nice room. Oh, my God. Rome, did you ever work in Rome? Have you ever lived in Rome? The first
2: day of shooting on uh, Mission 3 was in Rome. Was it? Yeah.
1: How's that? Um, um, how long did you stay?
2: We were there for a few weeks.
1: Yeah. It was really fun. I think it's the most beautiful city in the world. Too.
2: It's unbelievable. Um, so do you want me to just read it? Yes. Yep. All right. And is it, uh, is it Penny Regatta? Yeah. Okay. Um, I competed in the Penny Regatta once.
1: In the Regatta? <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is, seriously, it's, I'm so stupid. Okay, here we go. All right. Penny alla carbonara. Here we go. For us, the two most important ingredients are excellent free-range eggs and pancetta stessa. This serves six. You start with 200 grams, seven ounces, (laughs) of pancetta cut into matchsticks, one tablespoon olive oil, six egg yolks, 120 milliliters, four fluid ounces, of double cream, 150 grams, five ounces, parmesan, freshly grated, 250 grams, 9 ounces, of penne regatta. Fry the pancetta and the olive oil slowly so that it releases its own fat before becoming crisp. Add some black pepper. Beat the egg yolks with the cream and season with salt and pepper. Add half the parmesan. Meanwhile, cook the penne in a generous amount of boiling salted water, then drain thoroughly. Combine immediately with a hot pancetta and the oil, and then pour in the cream mixture. Stir to coat each pasta piece. The heat from the pasta will cook the eggs slightly. Finally, add the remaining Parmesan and serve.
1: Beautiful. So, what was food like when you were growing up? Did, so your mother would say, cook? She was a cook, or did she? She was a cook, help? and she
2: would make you know traditional like brisket, mm. Jewish sort of food. She would, but she would also make you know. She made a, an amazing Caesar salad. For some mm. reason, her Caesar salad was fantastic. Really? I don't know what it was. It was great, um, and uh, she was always always about what we were eating and to a point where it was insane. Like, I would, I, we'd be sitting at a lunch that she would have made and the conversation she wanted to have would be about dinner. The next And it would be like, I, I, yeah. I'm trying, you know, we're just eating. But weirdly, um, now, I do tend to look forward to food in a way that yeah. is probably not right-sized. Is probably vaguely, uh, it's not like an obsession, but it's like, it's super important.
1: And is that at home? You think at home with your kids, or just it, now you're thinking in, about what you're going to eat. In tonight? general,
2: I think it's it. Food is such a it, it's something that like I I know this is going to sound insane, but I literally get sad when I'm like halfway through a meal. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, like it's you know, end. Like, yeah, because no. like, it's going to be over soon, yeah. and and it, it's a very and I do think there's probably some strong analogy to life in that yeah. that there's something right. about it that you just feel like, oh no, it's you know, this is you don't want this to go away. She was always concerned that you weren't eating enough Enough, while you were eating. Also, it's interesting because she, like myself, um, she always talked about herself and and felt that she was fat, and she was incredibly not fat.
1: Yeah, no, and you're not fat.
2: But like, whatever the body dysmorphia thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But like, but and yet both she and i like it's not like we then shy away from food yeah. it's the opposite like yeah. it's like i'm i love yeah. you know and I, and as a kid when i was you know young i definitely was a, a a chubby kid but i was never like athletic so i sort of probably conflated that feeling of being chubby as a kid and then not a very good athlete with yeah. somehow just being yeah. uh, a bit of a fat slob, but I, I loved food. I remember as a kid, I was always, you know, I was always making things. Um,
1: did you, yeah, you cooked as a kid? With her or by yourself? Both. Yeah, what you know. would you cook? Well, her? whatever she, what she was making. She
2: would, like, be it. doing, you know, all sorts of things. And it was also, like, L.A. in the 70s, so it was, like, you know, like, stuffed zucchini things. Yeah. Just things that yeah. were just, like, very much of that era. Um, she would cook, but the thing that I was most, beyond her just being, to a fault, probably, uh, mm-hmm loving i mean Mm -hmm. she was so loving that it was like i remember thinking i know it's not as good as you think it is whatever it is i've done but the thing that i really take away the most was that switching up what you do and how you define yourself and and who you are is part of living that 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 not being defined by a label Mm -hmm. or or any one thing and and she was someone who uh when we moved to los angeles and i was only five we moved from new york she's Early on, started being uh, she, a, a real estate uh, agent, and then she, you know, she was interested in art and started doing classes and became a, a painter. But then she was going to be 40, and she thought, you know, she wanted to be a lawyer, and she was asking around: Is it crazy to start law school? Mm-hmm you know, when you're 30, she asked someone, and I remember their response to her was, you know, in, in two years, you're going to be 40 either way.
1: Yeah,
2: You know, um, and then okay. she went to law school and graduated top of her class, and then she became a law professor, and she was doing that for a while, and, and then she wanted to go into uh, producing, and she did that. You know, she's just, she was someone who was constantly creating, and, and but also shape-shifting. Would tracing. you sit
1: down to dinner yeah. every night? Yeah, we would sit... Whatever you were doing, We would yeah. sit
2: at the table most every night, um, although obviously at a certain point. And it might not be... Frankly, as I say this, I, I'm sure that if my sister's listening to this, she's probably like laughing and saying, what are you talking about every night? We, you know, my mm. guess is it's probably far less yeah. frequently than my memory uh, suggests, but I, I have, you know, I have a real sense of and memory of... Uh, sitting together with the family. But, um, but it was also, you know, I have to say, because it was that era, and I think being in Los Angeles in the 70s, there was a bit of, like, carelessness. And I know that I'm comparing it to some of the more kind of helicopter parent mm-hmm. crap that happens today, which is not healthy at all mm-hmm. either. But there was a bit of, um, of a kind of benign neglect and maybe not even benign sometimes mm-hmm. that would happen with parents. And I I certainly feel like I was safe. I never felt like, oh, my God, my parents are, like, crazy. They were not, like, druggy, nutty, out of their minds, you know. But they were in that era. And whether it was, like, various, you know, cults that were around, mm-hmm. whether it was, like, this kind of that culture was such a kind of freewheeling, odd sort of place to grow up, yeah. that I remember seeing a lot of friends whose parents were, kind of off the rails as parents.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
2: but I will say that like I do have a sense that that there were times when I think my sister and I were a little bit on our own too in terms of like not really being supervised yeah. the way yeah. you'd think kids should
1: be. Yeah. But you came out, you know, that that uh, mm-hmm. I look at my kids and I you know, when you are a grandparent, you'll see that you kind of It's great having grandchildren, but the really interesting thing is to see them as parents, your children as parents. It's very Mm. revealing. And I think I often look back and, you know, Richard and myself, and we certainly were not as attentive as they are. No, but I... I, 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 I'm just really sorry, Zad, but I do think (laughs) we were, you know.
2: I I do think that you, um, you know, you're constantly learning lessons. I'm fascinated with what you're talking about because I, I think there's a, there's obviously this sort of seismic shift that happens mm-hmm. when what was your primary family shifts into a slightly into a different, you know, to the, mm-hmm. not the rear view, but a very yeah. different position, and your primary family becomes the family you choose mm-hmm. to make. But then there's another shift that happens again when then your kids shift, yeah. and you're suddenly the one that's being shifted. It's not your choice, and you're sort of the and and so I think that we're probably constantly learning about kind of where we stand based on Mm -hmm. kind of how we define ourselves given the relationships with the people we love the most and when you start to see people that you raised that you you know in some cases gave birth to and you raised that you you witness something that sometimes you realize oh wow I don't know where the hell they got that or how they know that but certainly not from me and other times you think oh my god they actually did absorb that thing that I did not think they were aware of and it's just fascinating
1: You're, you talk about your mother. What about the men in your family? Did they cook? Does your father? My, he came right up to the past. You remember when you brought your father to the River oh yeah, Cafe? Yeah. And he was so interested in the food. He was with me. I don't know if he was interested in cooking or eating, but with me. He He, uh, that night. he
2: loves food. Uh, he would cook something sometimes. It was sort of usually fairly simple stuff. Uh, he was uh, a soft-boiled egg. Ew. Not soft-boiled. So, what's it called? Like when it's like, yeah, soft like. Yeah, soft-boiled. Yeah. Which I, never in my life will understand. But he loved oh, yeah. them, and he had that little like egg cup.
1: Yeah, and then and he would tap the thing. Yeah, and like, that's that's very British. Did yeah, you live it's in England British. ever? Because that's how the no. English do. They they call them soldiers, and you kind of do little. Things and you of dip the bread, the, and then you dip, dip them the in. little yeah. uh, bread into a very piece. running yes. egg. I'm no, thank I'm you.
2: So I have great. no interest. My, but my dad, I think if you said to him, um, you could have this giant pile of gold. Or cool. some eggs. <laughs> he <laughs> loves skin. eggs in a way I don't I don't yeah. think is healthy. Yeah. And not not like unhealthy cholesterol, like yeah. I think mentally yeah, is insane.
1: No, no, no. So yeah. he has them all day or just for breakfast? He'll just
2: if you ever want him to say yes to you, say okay, do you want some yes. eggs? Because okay. that's the he'll I'll never say that, no to that.
1: I'd love to see him.
0: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
2: I was obsessed for some reason with omelets. I don't know what, huh. why, where that came yeah. from, but... You know, it looks so easy, but like once you start getting into it.
1: How do you make an omelet? It is
2: deceptively difficult. It, it is. really is. Why? Um well because you you think, come on, what? Eggs in a pan it's like first yeah. of all, one of the key things about an omelet I think is just not keeping it on the fire because when I forever I would just sort of keep the pan there and keep the eggs there and you have to actually take them off as when I think as soon as they start to congeal. Mm-hmm. Um and then I don't like flipping it before you fill it, and then, you know, I think you want to sort of do it, but Let's Start from the do.
1: beginning. Do you put water in them, or do you no. put milk? Nothing.
2: I'll put in milk sometimes, but yeah. we, I, I'm not, I'll usually just do eggs and then some salt. So
1: how, yeah, what do you put I have in, very, in the omelet? I
2: have very stupid, uh, simple, like I like um, a little bit of like sauteed onions in it, mm. and um, maybe some tomato diced up. Nice. But nice. not filling things, like I don't yeah, like, like bell peppers and Western omelets or any of that stuff. Yeah, that's,
1: that's what I like about brunch in New York, because it's they always give you these, Huge omelets, don't they? With oh, yeah. like spinach and everything. Big stuff. I'm fascinated
2: watching because it's the truth is like until there was cooking shows and things. And um, have you seen the the Julia Child thing? Not season?
1: yet. Is it she, good?
2: She cooks an omelet in the very first yeah. episode, and in, in yeah. a way, in, on live TV, and it's it's very charming. And yeah. um, before there are all the cooking shows, when you go to any kind of whether you're at a hotel or a you know like a buffet when they would have someone cooking the you know, I'm always fascinated watching someone
1: Yeah, they do that little well, thing. Who yeah. makes
2: some yeah. anyone who makes like ten thousand omelets yeah. a day or yeah. whatever it is, like yeah. it's fascinating to watch someone and then the way they they, they flip the thing over and yeah. I, you just think or at least I think I'm never gonna be able to do do you
1: flip yeah. things like that in pans? No, I don't flip. I'm not very good at flipping. But they are the chefs. They flip pastas. You know, they they, know. they make the penne and then they go like that. And I, I'm kind of standing. I there I
2: know. <laughs> it's it's a little bit like watching like an Olympic jumper. It scares the hell out of me. <laughs> do How that, do they do that?
1: Yeah. I know. And they kind of. I don't even know if it's necessary. I, the the I think it's it does off? coat all the pasta. It is probably. I like shaking a pan. I'm, I'm yes, quite good at kind I of like shaking. You. I like getting potatoes out of the. Oven and burning my hand, you know. Shaking, I always say to the chefs, shake a pan in the oven. Have you ever reached I into like the oven shake. without
2: putting a mitt on? Like oh, in, Have you ever reached into the oven for something without putting a, hand, a mitt on? Like, because uh, yeah, you've just been so busy. in the beginning,
1: when I, because you know, I was never trained. So we, Rose and I just opened the River Cafe, and said you were, were never do trained this. to do no, this. No, no, I took some. Don't I mean, tell anyone this. Yeah, why? Because it ruins. Because go Oh, okay. So will I went to away. cooking school when yeah. I was fourteen. No, we just, you know, we were family cooks, both of us. She went to live in Italy, and. I, my mother-in-law was Italian and taught me to cook. But we started so small. The River Cafe was, you know, nothing. It was mm. teeny tiny. And so I would say we learned. Well, you made small movies, didn't you? How did you? No. Did you train to be a film director? Did I, you go I, to school? I I
2: didn't. But uh, I just want to. The first movie I directed was Mission Impossible Three. Yeah. Because Tom Cruise asked me if I wanted to do it, and. You know, Why did he my ask? My response you? was yes. Did he
1: just, yeah, did he just he just knew
2: uh smart guy. He he knew look, all all I know is that is that he he and I got to know each other a little bit and he had watched some of this T V yeah. series I'd done called Alias. It was about yeah. a spy.
1: So he'd seen Alias first. And he asked yeah, if yeah. I would be interested
2: yeah. in in doing Mission Impossible three. Yeah. So that was crazy. I, I started so as a writer smart. and then I got yeah. into doing T V and then ended up doing uh doing mission first. But Wait a minute, you were saying... Back you, to
1: the omelette. So I was just saying that I don't shake don't, a pan. And I didn't burn, I, you do shake well, a pan. Oh, you're reaching days, into the... No, Richard that's used right. to get very upset because you used to come back with with burns. You know, that was the thing. I hate... That always scares the hell out say, of me. What's to say? You, would you rather have a cut or a burn? What's worse? You know, burn. I hate burns. Burns. I really hate burns. burns. cuts, you can kind of no, burns are put a just thing on. But a burn awful. is upsetting. Oh, it's But yeah. that's
2: always what I think when I see people in kitchens working as you know mm. you do. I'm always... The thing that I'm always... And it's a bit... Also talking about my mom, it's a bit like, here's one more thing I'm to say about my mom. Okay, my mom. Go on. She was always so careful about everything, like she like mm-hmm. and wanted us to be so careful. Yeah. And to see where that came from, her father, who was Harry Kelvin, who uh, was one of my favorite people, and he was an incredible influence on me. What, to why? Because he he worked. He had this electronics uh, company called Kelvin Electronics, which is still around. Mm-hmm. And Kelvin Electronics was a place that would, he started uh, after the Second War, and he, he, was, he sold surplus electronics as mm. kits to schools. And he,
1: oh, for lessons in how things work.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So here was a guy who was aware of how certain things, radios and TVs and telephones and things, worked. So, so as a young kid, he would take things apart and show me how a phone worked or how a TV worked mm. or mm. why this happened. And then we would do these little projects together where we'd have a little plank of wood, and we would put a motor on it, and we would put little brackets to, you know, s- screw it in place, and then a little battery, and then a switch, and he would show me how the circuit works, and he was always demystifying things and how how they work. So that was always something. But he was also, apparently, like, petrified of his grandchildren ever getting hurt. Danger,
4: and, and, but, danger. But you saw that how
2: he lived. Like, he yeah. was a bit paranoid. And he would have... Every corner in his house, whether it was a table, a counter, anything, he would take tissue and roll it up and then put like electrical tape on it and everything was padded. So it was a little bit like the ridiculous, like you'd mm-hmm. run through the house and everything was padded. So that was kind of where my mom, by the way, one thing about my grandfather, which um, was vaguely funny. So his company, uh, Calvin Electronics, he had some really cool designs for some of his catalogs. And one of them was this, this circuit that looked like a K. And I always sort of loved it. And I loved my grandfather. Now, he was a great-grandfather, but I know as a father, he was a bit tough. To your
1: mother. And
2: my mother's sister. And I think that, like, my mom would say, I think that he was bipolar. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But he, to me, he was just a great-grandfather, mm-hmm. and I didn't get any of that. There was a little bit of the, you know, anger here and there, but, like, mm-hmm. I never had the issues that she had. Anyway, so the K design was really cool, and we were doing a little in-house visual effects company that we were calling Kelvin Optical. So I had this um, graphic designer who was working on a logo. And I said, oh, why don't we just use the logo that he used to use, mm. which is the case. So she looked at it, and she did some research, and she came back, and she, she said to me, oh, this is, this is an actual circuit that exists. I'm like, oh, really? In
1: the shape of a K. It, yeah, like-
2: and she's like, it's called a bipolar circuit. Now, my mom had passed away at that point, so I couldn't call her to say, you're not going <laughs> to believe this. But his <laughs> logo was bipolar. Um, anyway... Um, but uh, but my mother was always, like, you know, n- nervous about things and how things happen. And for whatever reason, when I look at a kitchen and see how the crazy it is, it is. Yeah. I feel like it's sort of that yeah. kind of, like, nervousness that she used to have. Mm-hmm. And I think, dear God, please put an oven mitt on. Because the idea of reaching into and grabbing
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. a mozzarella mm-hmm. marinara pan yeah, yeah. barehanded yeah, yeah. is a nightmare. Ahead.
1: Yeah. I think that fear uh, uh, people sometimes say can we come and cook in the kitchen or can i spend the day with you in the kitchen and sometimes he says but you know it is a dangerous place so that's my I thing. Agree. you know if you come in a kitchen you you know and, and the chefs the way they move and they carry hot pans and they're always saying and in the river cafe you know we have an open kitchen so you can't shout you know hot behind you yeah, or right. move or whatever everybody's kind of navigating between yeah. between hot plates and if you are a chef and you leave something hot, and you burn one of your colleagues. It's very uh, upsetting. And so, the kitchen is, you know, but I hate probably that. It. the no, kitchen's I a dangerous place, and a film set's a dangerous uh, place, isn't
2: it? A film set oh. can be really dangerous, and mm-hmm. and in ways that you cannot predict. Sometimes, I mean, I, I have mm-hmm. friends who have been injured by falling lights or planks mm-hmm. of wood or things mm-hmm. that you know. And there are all sorts of protections that you know, sort of procedures that are in place. But like you, a kitchen. Yeah, but. When you have that many people, moving parts, that many people, that mm. in, the lights are incredibly hot and the, the, there are cables everywhere and mm. a lot of times, like in the case of the accident that we had, there was you know this hydraulic door that was being triggered by someone and it just went down mm. at the wrong moment in the wrong way and it luckily didn't kill anyone but certainly could have.
1: Yeah. But talking about restaurant kitchens, what about restaurants? Did your parents take you to restaurants? Was that a kind of Abrams that you'd celebrate in a restaurant? Sure. Or
2: um, but you know, growing up, again in in LA like going to the sizzler was a big deal what's that the sizzler Oh my God, steak, steak, seafood, and salad? <laughs> it's a chain here. It's a, it's a chain well, of restaurants. I'm American,
1: I should know that. But you should. I don't know. Uh, no, no, I'm, i not. didn't I'm, know what pot of noodles I'm embarrassed were. That Pete I Davidson know. talked about that this favorite. Uh, about what? Know, Pete Davidson. Yeah. But he's saying that his favorite meal was. was cup, cup of noodles? Rare, was it cup of noodles? Yeah, I no, know, I. I, so I um, I've been away too long. But what? So what was. No, Sizzler? no, we, we, Tell me about Sizzler. What's Sizzler that?
2: was, uh, I mean, look, th- th- there were a handful of very 70s and early 80s restaurants uh, that were on the, at least on the West Coast or in California. One of them was Hamburger Hamlet.
1: Yeah, I know that one. So I would yeah. go there. That was good, wasn't it? It was good. There mm-hmm. was a place
2: in Westwood called the Chatham that was like a little sort of fancy, I don't know, we, my mom would take me there. Like there were just, there were certain places we would go. At the time, growing up, Westwood, which is where UCLA is, was a great area. Mm-hmm. And it was fun and there were just tons of restaurants and great stores. It was an amazing kind of destination, which has now... Changed dramatically and is is sadly not what it used to be and you know hopefully can recapture some of its uh, former glory but um, there were just a ton of places there so, so you
1: eat out quite often or not, just not very
2: often but but uh, enough that like I have a lot of memories of going yeah. to these places and uh, what I would order.
1: I haven't been to very many commencement addresses, but I did listen to your address at Sarah Lawrence. Mm. And it's something I often quote because you were talking to these kids who were about to go out into the world and you were kind of there giving them guidance and advice at at a commencement speech. But what moved me enormously was when you talked about kindness Mm. and the value of kindness. And you asked the question, have you ever been in a restaurant where food was served to you and you were with somebody who didn't look up at the waiter and say thank you? Mm. And I thought that is something that I say all the time because I work with waiters. And they, again, so value and so moving to them when somebody says thank you. Again, Why did you say that in the commencement speech? <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't remember
2: anything I said in that speech, but I, and I'm so glad you you said it because I, I was like, what are you quoting? What, what did yeah. I say? Oh, my God.
1: Should listen to it. It's but, a beautiful but, but, speech. You're very
2: sweet, but I I to that I I would just say um part of it is the peeve of it, but it's deeper than that because anyone who's worked in any kind of service industry mm-hmm. um and I while well, I was never Did a, you
1: work in a restaurant?
2: I did. I was a, a host at this Mexican restaurant here in LA, <laughs> but I, I I worked at like a, you know an ice yeah. cream store and yeah. you know I at different stores growing up and that feeling that you have of of doing well by someone and doing your job and and being helpful and getting n- not even a an acknowledgement or a look or an not and look I, i'm sure that this happens all the time to everyone but it's a different thing when you have the job and you know what it's like to be dehumanized and disregarded and you know and and yet that experience for me, and part of it is because I remember as a young kid not being athletic. the value you have socially as a kid is often connected to sort of how well you play sports mm-hmm. or how well mm-hmm. what your grades are if you're you know uh, my grades were never particularly great, and I was never uh, any good at sports so weirdly, I had no I, I had nothing of value as, as a kid, and i remember I remember that feeling of of oh i'm not seen as anything of either n- note uh, or importance or, you know, anything special. It was just, I remember that feeling. And so in a way, one of the reasons why in terms of stories, like, I tend to love underdogs. Mm. And I'm, look, no one is crying for the little white boy who, you know, felt like he couldn't throw a ball. But it's like the the fact that you, you know, you grow up in, in some ways, we all have, insecurities and, and experiences that, that shape us. And I remember feeling like, you know, growing up and then in these jobs, it's so easy to be unseen or, or overlooked mm. or treated badly. I mean, I think people sometimes go out in order to berate people and treat mm. people badly because it makes them feel better yeah. and use people as punching bags. And a a waiter is like the prime example of someone who is who is doing you, you know, this sort of beautiful service mm-hmm. of, and even if the waiter's not particularly great, they're still serving you, yeah. they're a server. Like, mm-hmm. on that level, to not acknowledge that person and have gratitude for them mm-hmm. says so much more about who that person is. Yeah. So I don't know quite what the context of that comment was, but my guess it is it was, was like, it don't was be a friend that, with, <laughs> yeah. don't don't yeah. continue to have a relationship yeah. with the person yeah. who treats someone That's that way. That's what you
1: said. And the waiters that we have, you know, you see a lot in a restaurant. You see people crying. You see people coming to a restaurant for very private things in a yeah. public space. They get fired, they admit affairs, they get divorced, they get married, they get proposed to.
2: It's a window into and everything. And do you, do that, so do you take
1: people to a restaurant sometimes? Would you, before hiring somebody, take them to a restaurant and to kind of see before how they hire, are? I
2: have. I mean, I, there, I've had all sorts of meetings like that with people before working uh, on something or, or mm. committing to something, sure. But I also, I go to restaurants... To work all the time, like do I'm, you? Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I, write most of what I write at restaurants because I, the energy of the space, the noise of it, yeah. what you were just describing, it's like when you're at a restaurant, it's like it, it, it modulates between the most extreme dramatic breakup that might be yeah. happening at the table, yeah. you know, yeah. two tables over, to that first date between people, to you know, a parent and child. Like there's everywhere you look, there is a window into a drama mm. that is probably mm-hmm. its own. Story. So the inspiration that comes from just sitting in a, in a restaurant um, and a, a coffee shop too, but restaurants are my preference. I, I just feel like it kind of fuels me in a way that when I'm in a room alone, I can do that too and I don't mind it and I'll mm. put headphones on, listen to some music that I like. But there's something about being in a restaurant that is hugely uh, inspiring and, and um, I don't know, it helps me.
1: Do you do it now? You still go to rest? All the time. Really? All the time. Wow. Do you write longhand on a laptop? What do you do? You take
2: longhand it? when I first start working on something uh, until it starts to become something that is starting to like become more congealed and solid and yeah. uh, like an omelet, and then I will go and start to uh, do it on the laptop.
1: Yeah. So talking, this is that we're going to finish now, but comfort. So if we have food like your mother to express love or your father to grandfather about fear or hungry, you know, or we're in the pandemic and we want to cook. We also go to food for comfort. Mm-hmm. So if you need comfort, J.J. J. Abrams, is there a food that you would go to for comfort?
2: Is there a food? Not, there isn't really like, I mean, I, it's funny. I, I just took my dad to dinner at Tantana's uh, the other night mm-hmm. in uh, West Hollywood. And we were talking about how it was such comfort food and usually comfort food feels like it's got a bit of an Italian, like there's something about a pasta mm. that is just mm. so comforting and feels mm-hmm. so good. And, you know, so there, there's that kind of a thing. And it's usually like, I guess it's might be like the carby starchy yeah. thing that does it. But it's funny. Cause as you were asking, I was like thinking it's hard to imagine like a food that on some level doesn't provide some kind of like, you know, a really great sushi dinner or a wonderful, you know, like a great pizza or something that, yeah. you know, of course there's bad versions of everything, but food in general is just, is such a comfort.
1: You like that ice cream. Oh, I know. Yeah. Almond ice cream, you know, the, the toasted almond ice cream. Is that, I is there, is me- that a question? Yeah. What do you,
2: I'm, I mean, <laughs> does, does my ordering multiple dishes of it indicate
1: that you might be partial I might to like it? it? All right, can we find I'm it? I'm
2: doing it, I'm claiming it.
1: All right. Oh, hi. Uh, can you do me a really quick favor?
2: You're looking for the recipe itself?
1: See if there's a recipe there for um, almond ice cream. You're so kind. Do you want to, I'll hold on if you find... I'm going to hold on while you find it.
3: The River Cafe Lookbook is now available in bookshops and online. It has over 100 recipes beautifully illustrated, with photographs from the renowned photographer Matthew Donaldson. The book has 50 delicious and easy-to-prepare recipes, including a host of River Cafe classics that have been specially adapted for new cooks. The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for cooks of all ages. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is